Welcome to The Brian Nichols Show. I'm your host, Brian Nichols, Associate Editor at The Libertarian Republic. The Brian Nichols Show is the newest podcast on the We Are Libertarians Network, and might I add, the fastest-growing podcast on Libertarian, uh, We Are Libertarians Network. Uh, So who are we at The Brian Nichols Show? Yes, we have a libertarian bias, but we're for anyone and everyone across the political spectrum. I've had people who are far leftists, uh, all the way to your uh, your anarchists on the show. Um, But really the goal is to have a a objective show that will present the news in a manner that you care about uh, with three goals, to help educate, enlighten, and inform, as always. You can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. And please feel free to go ahead and subscribe to our Patreon to help us keep producing this great content you enjoy. As always, please feel free to go onto iTunes, uh, rate, review, and share this uh, latest podcast. Um, because today we're continuing this wonderful uh, progression we have with having some wonderful guests on the show. And today I am joined by Red State's senior contributor, Kimberly Ross. You can find her on Twitter at Southern Keeks, K-E-E-K-S, um, or you can find her on Red State at redstate.com forward slash Kimberly underscore Ross. Kimberly, thank you for joining me on the show today. Well, thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to joining the uh, Libertarian Network and talk about <laughs> how I'm not a Libertarian, but how you should still listen to what I have to say. I love it. And that's, that's really the whole goal of uh, today's show because, I, now Kimberly, you're, you're, you're going to love this. You were actually mentioned in the uh, the first podcast I ever did here for the Brian Nichols show back in, in January this year um because oh, no. I, I know it's a good thing though I promise <laughs> cuz so the reason I mentioned you was because I was introducing this show as a a libertarian podcast that is to really reach out and bring people in from all different persuasions um you know be they you know left right down the middle um libertarian uh, communist, socialist, conservative, you name it, and to really try to come together and find where we can have some commonalities. Um, now, I don't want to speak for yourself, but I kind of did back in the first episode. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm going to give you the floor here to kind of correct me maybe if I was wrong um, and, and to kind of give your your uh, perspective of things. So I had mentioned that the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian Movement as a whole has a really tough issue when it comes to uh, public relations and marketing and how in 2016 we had a phenomenal opportunity to really reach out and grow the movement leaps and bounds by bringing in a lot of people who were in the i would say social conservative slash uh more fiscal conservative camp in the republican party because a lot of those folks couldn't take the likes of a Donald Trump presidency or just the candidacy of Donald Trump and, and putting their name behind him. Um, so we had like the likes of Glenn Beck, Eric Erickson, Liz Mayer, who are all, I guess I, I want to say libertarian curious. And I would dare say at one point you were kind of in that camp as well, uh, but you ended up kind of teetering away from that and I just wanted to give you the floor there and kind of, I guess, fill me in. What was it exactly that made you not exactly uh, become enamored with, I guess, number one, Gary Johnson, uh, but more specifically, the libertarian movement as a whole? Uh, yes, well, I um, I guess when the 2016 election came around, obviously I was not into Donald Trump and his candidacy. Obviously not a fan of Hillary Clinton, hadn't been for a really long time. Um, Felt a little bit uh, politically homeless. Uh, And I guess the last few years I've definitely moved away from being a GOPer uh, to just kind of a conservative and what you might call a conservative independent. Definitely looked at the Libertarian Party, the big L and small L, which I'm still trying to figure out. looking at that and seeing, you know, that is another option in the political spectrum. Um, but when it came down to election day, I voted um, for the Constitution Party uh, just because I couldn't cast a vote for Trump or Hillary, but I wanted to vote. And, you know, that's you know what I like to do when there's an election, no matter if the person um, I want to win is not on the ballot. Um, but no, I, I've 
I guess I've flirted with the Libertarian Party a little bit. I've still, I would still say that I kind of have a toe in the Libertarian Party because there are things I like about it. There are things I don't. There's some things I'm confused on. Um, definitely wasn't a fan of Gary Johnson. Um, I appreciate Austin Peterson and, you know, the stances he's, you know, taken and everything. But I, I would say I'm still Libertarian curious, but you're, you're going to have to do a little bit more to pull me in, into there. So that's actually a really good jumping off point because so I had Alicia Dern on back about I think it was three episodes ago and she is running for for chairperson of the Libertarian National um, Party and one of her main goals was to uh, be able to go out and uh, attract those who are libertarian curious. Mm -hmm. um, now as you and I have we've had our, our own private conversations with regards to uh, the big L libertarian, that is the libertarian party, and then the little L libertarian being those who are identified as libertarians in, in terms of their values, but aren't necessarily a part of the libertarian party itself. Um, so I guess my question to you would be, in 2016, what was it that kept you from taking that full step into libertarianism and to really... I guess maybe getting more into this world of libertarianism outside of the, uh, how do I put this delicately, outside of the way that we've been perceived by those in the media like, or, or just some of the more focal or vo vocal individuals like the, the guy dancing on stage naked at the convention, right. the what is Aleppo moment and the like. So is there, is, was that the right. main issue or is there some underlying things that kept you away? Uh, I guess there are two main things when it comes to the 2016 election. Gary Johnson, um, I just don't think, obviously, like I said, and you know you know this, I'm not into the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian movement, but I don't think Gary Johnson was a good representative of the party. And I understand that he is a more popular member of you know, the whole movement. And probably <laughs> that's why, he, I mean, as far as like name recognition, that's probably Absolutely. why he you know, got the nomination, but I don't think he was the best, you know, person on your side to obviously get the nomination. I think Austin Peterson, and was it Bill Weld, right? Weld, correct. Bill Weld. Um, I think they, they had a more, I guess, grounded approach and more knowledgeable, um, I don't know, just more knowledgeable about the issues. And I kind of feel like Gary Johnson was placed in that position because, I don't know, he's been around a while and he just kind of works and people are, oh, libertarian, yeah, that guy, Gary Johnson, he's that libertarian guy. <laughs> um, so just then, I, I would say the name recognition of him, but I was not I, I was not at all excited about voting for him. I don't think he had the, you know, I, I guess the chops to do, you know, what was needed as a presidential candidate. Um, so that kind of kept me away from that. And also as a social conservative in plenty of things, I wouldn't say I'm a social conservative in everything, but especially the abortion issue. That is my thing that I probably write about the most. That's something that I'm the most passionate about, I guess, in the political um, arena. And the fact that libertarians are still a little bit confused on the pro-life, pro-choice, pro-abort issue, there's not some unifying, I guess, banner that the libertarians wave as far as that's concerned. And that, that bothers me. Well, and that's a really good point because even within um, libertarianism as a whole, uh, we still have these um, these debates with regards to pro-choice and, and pro-life. And a lot of libertarians have had some issue in terms of trying to rectify in their own minds, okay, so we believe in this principle called the non-aggression principle. Um, where you you can basically do what you want so long as you're not infringing upon the rights of anybody else. Um, mm -hmm. So they look, and I don't want to frame somebody else's argument incorrectly, but the, what I've gathered from within the libertarian movement of those who are in the pro-choice camp, it's that um, the unborn child is not another person and that the person who is carrying the unborn child has more... I guess jurisdiction within their own life. Now, you said that you were you were a little enamored with Austin Peterson as a candidate. Was that one of the reasons? Because he was more in that pro-life camp, or uh, yeah, I mean, I, I do appreciate his uh, pro-life stance on things, and that when 
I would say if someone who's not in the libertarian camp, when you hear of a pro-life libertarian, especially someone that's more of a kind of an independent conservative who definitely is focused on pro-life issues, your ears kind of perk up. You're like, oh, this guy, he's a libertarian, mm-hmm. but he's pro-life. I need to look into you know him and what he believes exactly. a little bit. Because that's the reason I brought yeah. him up, because Austin got a lot of flack um, as a libertarian. I mean, Austin had to mm-hmm. really answer to a lot of libertarians within the larger not only libertarian movement, but also within the larger libertarian party, um, because he was one of the more vocal members who took a stand and saying, I'm a pro-life libertarian. And and we've seen throughout the movement a lot more of these individuals within the liberty movement who are kind of taking this stand as well. Um, not just saying Austin led that charge, but just myself, since I've been involved, I've noticed this as well. Um, where you have individuals like a Jason Stapleton or like a Chris Spangle um, who are out there advocating for pro-life positions, even though they're, it, it, I wouldn't say it's an unpopular position to have to, within the Libertarian Party or movement. It's just, it's such a divisive issue, I think, overall, mm-hmm. even beyond the, the scope of a political party. So I guess if you could, Kimberly, just kind of give me your overall passion behind the pro-life movement, I mean, what really pushed you into you know, being an advocate for this particular movement? And and I guess one thing as well, I'll, I'll finish the question with this, is how would you want to bring in, like, what, what would your argument be to bring in more people into the pro-life movement? Sure. I would say that I uh, began a very passionate stance for the unborn actually when I first learned what abortion was and what it did. Um, and that was when I was in about 15, 16, uh, just really understanding why women would choose uh, that if they were faced with uh, unplanned pregnancies or even unwanted pregnancies, because, I mean, let's not sugarcoat it. There's plenty of women who get pregnant and they don't want their child. And they believe that abortion is the mm-hmm. only answer uh, for them to move on with their life and their plans and everything. So it was from a young age when I definitely fully understood what happened and that it happened thousands of times every day and it had happened millions and millions of times since Roe v. Wade. Uh, And so I guess that weight and the enormity of it really impressed upon me uh, that I needed to, I guess, kind of carry that mantle and be vocal about it Uh, because, and I know a lot of people are like this, most people are like this, uh, but the idea that the defenseless uh, and the helpless are preyed upon by others who, um, you know, have power in any situation, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb, that is deeply disturbing. And I would say that's the that that's my number one um, you know problem in any sort of situation when those who can't defend themselves are, you know, they're they're taken out, they're um, they're used and abused. Uh, so I guess that's really where I come from with that. So but as far as oh, go ahead, sorry, continue. I was going to say as far as the um, what I would say to the libertarians on the abortion issue. Uh, I actually think of all the different groups, you know, the Democrats, the Republicans, Libertarians, of all the different political groups out there, I think the Libertarians should probably be the most vocal for unborn life because your your main thing is liberty and the liberty to live as you want, the liberty, um, you know, to you know, have all the all the rights that you have and you can live them as you want them. Um, and of course, without liberty, I mean, without life, you can't have liberty in the pursuit of happiness. And I think life comes first before liberty. And in, in the case of abortion, it involves two people. It doesn't involve one person making decisions about their body. It doesn't, you know, as, you know, some people bring up, you know, prostitution or drug use. They may be things that I don't agree with, but that involves one person and their body. Um, but when it comes to abortion, that involves two people. Uh, and regardless of the fact that the unborn child doesn't look like we do, doesn't have the same capabilities that we do, they have an inherent quality um, of worth to them that was established at the time of conception, which is my own personal belief. And it only takes time and growth to get them to the place where they're called a person, but everything that they need to be who they will always be is found in the moment of conception and their DNA, which is unique to them. Uh, so I th- I think that libertarians should take the mantle of pro-life. Probably they should raise it the highest and be the loudest about it. And I honestly don't understand why they don't. 
So I'm, I'm glad that you, you finished up with that because that act with regards to defining what life is because um, I think that might be the main issue in terms of where libertarians find themselves falling on either the pro-choice or the pro-life camp. Now I had, um, you know, as we've already talked about, Austin Peterson, I had him on um, back two weeks ago um, to talk about his U.S. Senate campaign in Missouri. And I actually, I brought up to him, uh, I was doing, uh, it was questions I had from the audience. And one of the questions was focusing on being a pro-life individual. Um, now, Austin, he is, and again, I don't want to label Austin something incorrectly, but <clears throat> from my perception of, of speaking with Austin and listening to him, is that he is what we like to call an agnostic, where he's not saying that he mm -hmm. believes in a God, does not believe in a God, he just doesn't know. Um, but he's still pro-life because, like you had mentioned, he does find the inherent value in the unborn life of a child. Um, and I love the the um, the way Austin explains it. Is he basically will say, well, you know, if we were to have a group of astronauts go to Mars tomorrow and they found a clump of cells, what would they call it? They call it life. Right. Um, yep. So why don't we do that with the unborn yeah. child? And I think that's a phenomenal way to, to frame it because. That, that truly is how I think not only libertarians, but also those that fall on the pro-choice side, they need to acknowledge it as well. And, and I, I'm so glad that you didn't even bring up the, the, you know, the issues with regards to rape, uh, the, the mother being in danger, because those are such statistical anomalies when you look mm -hmm. at the overall number of abortions that are conducted in America each year. Um, right. Now, one thing, I, now just taking a segue here, one thing that we've seen more, uh, more topically in the news has been the um, discussion that's been promoted by some pro-choice advocates with regards to specifically aborting unborn children who have certain physical characteristics that are either A, not deemed um, you know, medically 100%, so individuals with Down syndrome and mm -hmm. the likes. So I guess for me, that I just find that ab abhorrent. But what would your... I guess your Kimberly Ross perspective on those kind of arguments be, and how would you be able, what would your argument be to help maybe try to change those people's minds? Well, that is um, interesting that you brought that up because I actually wrote a piece at Red State about uh, the about Washington <laughs> Post article uh, that Ruth Marcus, who's a columnist there, she wrote a few weeks ago, a few Sundays ago, I think, um, about how if she, she has two children, they're, I think, adult age now and everything, but if she would have had a child be diagnosed with Down syndrome while they're still, um, you know, in her womb, she would have aborted them. Uh, and I actually, like I said, I wrote a piece about that. <laughs> that just breaks my heart. Like that just, it's, oh, I, I worked is. in mental health facilities for about yes. six years. And for me, I mean, I worked with people with severe mental, me mental disabilities. I mean, people who were to the point that they, they were basically in the six month or prior uh, brain development state. Mm -hmm. And like, just, the, that the idea that you would look at them and just say, uh, nah, bye. Like that just, it, it breaks my heart. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but sorry, no. please, <laughs> please continue. No, no, no. I can, I completely understand where you're coming from and her, um, article. It's not, I mean, how is it any different from eugenics? And she actually ends her piece by saying, uh, now maybe in the future, there might be women who choose to abort because of, um, of um, eye color or hair color or what how tall their child might be based on you know family characteristics now that would be eugenics and that's scary and then she essentially says but the constitution allows me to you know do these certain things with my body and if i would have had a child with down syndrome i would have done this first of all um judges decided that abortion was you know the way to go in our land um and I understand she has freedoms under the Constitution, but let's, you know, make sure that we talk about how separate those things are, how activist judges have changed the entire course of our nation because of a decision back in 1973. Well, and if I may, too, I mean, yes. just because something is legal does not make it moral. I mean, we what? had... I know, isn't it amazing? amazing. <laughs> like, I mean, we've had slavery in our country for, for damn near 75 years before yeah. it was it was we had a, a war over it to, to get rid of it i mean dred scott was the law of the land mm -hmm. uh, we've had co several constitutional cases where what was decided to be legal was not moral i mean separate but equal 
was legal, but it was not moral. And I just, I, it, it pains me because it's intellectually dishonest for those in the pro-choice camp to make an argument that, well, yeah. because the Supreme Court said that we should be able to do this, we should be able to do this because they said so. Okay, that's well and good, but just because it's legal, it doesn't make it moral, doesn't make it right. No, it does not. And I don't think we should be going about our life, you know, our daily business and saying, wait, I don't know if I should do this thing. Let me look at the government to see what they say about this thing before I do this thing. You just made a bunch of libertarian hearts just sore. (laughs) Just so you know. Oh, you libertarian. (laughs) Love me, even though I'm just a conservative. (laughs) Um, No, but yeah, I, I find it amazing that we look to the government for, you know, all these things in our life that we should know ourselves because I think there's a moral code um, that is separate from obviously what the government passes in Congress or, you know, what politicians say. And as far as the Down syndrome issue, I think there has to be with the abortion issue, regardless of if it's a Down syndrome child or just an unwanted child who's perfectly healthy, we have to have a dividing line between what is right and what is wrong. And if we keep moving that line to, oh, this person is Down syndrome, oh, we can kill them. Oh, this person came when I was still trying to finish my, you know, college class. Uh, oh, we can kill them because of that. No, we have to, there has to be a line that it's right on this side and it's wrong on this side. And I think we need to be pro-choice before conception and pro-life after. Of course, I have no problem with birth control. I have no problem with access to birth control. There's many types of birth control that are non-abortive that women should be able to take and, you know, they should have that covered by insurance. Obviously, there's a religious objection component, but um, yes, take birth control. Yes, make choices to where you're not in a situation where you're, you know, pregnant and you don't want to be because I want women to want their children. We don't want women to not want their children, obviously, but there needs to be a line that says after this, it's wrong. And personally, based on science, it doesn't have to do anything with religion. Science says that everything you need to be as a human is present in your DNA at conception. So therefore, anything after conception is murder in my book. No, I agree. So now I want to take that because that's a, again, a phenomenal segue because I want to stick in the pro-life discussion, but I want to fast forward a little bit to the death penalty. Now, this is another area where I think we might have a little disagreement. I'm not sure, though, because you just had somebody at Red State, and I cannot find a little article for the life of me, but the article that was on Red State, basically it was from someone in the pro-life camp, and I I forget her name, and if you can remember, please fill me in, Um, but she argued that she is pro-life before they're born, and she's pro-life until they die, and that includes not being for the death penalty because the value of a human life in general. So I just wanted to hear what's your take on that pro-life as it, the pro-life position as it pertains to the death penalty. Right. I think that article you're talking about, Sarah Quinlan wrote about it earlier That's this it. week. Um, and she, t- I, th- I think the title was something about how the, the GOP needs to do away with the death penalty, um, something to that. It was a good article. She had a lot of great was, points in it there. It was phenomenal. And I actually wrote a, an article um, kind of in you know concurrence with hers, but I said I'm pro-death penalty, but Trump's idea to put drug dealers to death is shockingly bad. That was my article. Uh, and, and in there, I talked about how as far as the death penalty is concerned, um, for me, the issue is people that commit murder, they have, and I'm sure I'll, I'll make all the libertarians who loved me five minutes ago mad now, but when someone is has taken another person's life, I believe their life should be taken. I think the pro-life issue as far as abortion is concerned is regarding innocent life, um, and the death penalty obviously is regarding um, people who are guilty. But I talked about how as far as the you know him putting drug dealers to death, which like I said is a horrible idea. Um, when you look just at that issue itself, can you really say that drug dealing is an immediately violent crime, or are there people who are dealt the drugs? Which you know I don't think you should you know deal opioids to someone because you know that what it's going to do to them is horrific. It might actually kill them, um, but the is it violent at that moment? Can you say it's like a first degree murder, you know, case or something? I don't believe you can. I do think the um, 
death penalty is something that should only apply to very specific airtight cases uh, where it's proven as far as um, you know DNA, fluid samples, blood samples, video, things like this. And I know it's a divisive issue, and it even is in conservative circles. I feel like some people are um, very mixed on that. And I actually talked to Sarah about this this week. I said that I am pro-death penalty when it comes to cases of murder that are airtight. But I said I'm... I would say I'm probably moving a little bit away from that and more toward the life in prison thing. I have no problem with someone who's raped and killed someone to spend their life in prison. In a lot of ways, I feel like that may be more of a of, of a sentence for them as they sit there and think about that for 30 or 40 years. Uh, but as it stands right now, when it comes to murder, I am for the death penalty. So I found the article, and the reason I wanted to look for it was because there was one part of her article that kind of, it speaks to what you just mentioned. So in her article, she says, um, you know, she's, she's speaking more so to the overall impact of the death penalty as it, as it pertains to um, looking at individual cases. And uh, she said, on March 14th, the Daily Beast published a story of Carlton Michael Gray, who in 1986 was sentenced to die for rape and murder quote, and who investigators say was linked to a 1975 New York murder charge, though no charges were ever filed. Police claim they discovered his fingerprints at three of seven victims' homes, and the sole survivor identified him. However, DNA, DNA tests determined semen at the survivor's home did not belong to Gary. The survivor mistakenly identified another man first, and footprints did not match Gary's shoe size, yet Gary was executed on March 15th. Um, so I think... That would speak to why so many libertarians are weary of the death penalty as it as it is now. Because, as you brought up, there there are cases, uh, and as, as Sarah here brought up, there are cases where people are misidentified, um, where they are, are wrongfully accused, um, and I, I think that's a big it's a big red flag. Mm -hmm. Now the, the the reason behind you saying that there are certain circumstances that you might look at justifying it. Those certain circumstances actually do align with, I think, quite a few libertarians, not so far as to say that we should go take the step of then, you know, giving them the death penalty, but to the fact that they violate the rights of another person. So be it you know, violating them physically by, by raping them or, or, you know, going ahead and actually taking their, their body, taking, you know, taking their life, killing them. That at that point, because they violated somebody's rights, they have in, in turn, impacted their own personal rights because of their violation of somebody else's rights. Um, right. So I think you're you're actually quite in line with um, with what a lot of libertarians would argue, believe it or not. It's just, I think, and, I, and I'm glad to hear that you're, you're actually kind of coming around a little bit to maybe considering not looking at the death penalty as something as, as something that we'd want to be the, I guess, the, the literally the, the jury judge and then the executioner because... I mean, we've seen a lot of these cases where there have been, you know, misidentified suspects, um, people who were wrongfully accused. Uh, I mean, we've seen with with some pretty damning cases, like like for instance the uh, the Duke Lacrosse uh, rape case, yes. where we find out that uh, you know it was completely made up against these these Duke Lacrosse players, um, and you know the if we had accused if we will before let's say we before let's just get rid of the whole judicial practice as it is if they had been found guilty um you know, their lives would have been ruined to the point that if the death penalty had been on the table and then we come to find 15 years later that oh yeah she did lie and she now admits it well too late <laughs> they're, they're gone so i think right. yeah i i am personally saying i'm glad to hear that you're coming around to that because that's i think that's where maybe your, your libertarian curiousness would actually serve you well. Yeah. <laughs> no, I um I, I don't think there's there's any room for error when it comes to the death penalty. And that in and of itself, the fact that humans are making these decisions and people can either misidentify or purposely, like with you were saying the Duke of Cross case, purposely lie about it. I mean, these are people's lives at stake, whether it's just them being in prison for decades or actually the death penalty. It's it's not something that should be taken lightly. I think it's something that Republicans, mm -hmm. conservatives tend to say very quickly, oh, this person should be put to death. Yeah, let's do that because they did this. And I understand that that's the passion we feel when someone takes another person's life. I mean, not even talking about 
nonviolent crimes, but when they take someone's life, obviously we are angered at that as we should, as another human being who sees this injustice happen. But I think we need to maybe take a step back and think about it. And obviously there needs to be no doubt whatsoever. And in cases where there are, or because there might always be, I think it's, um, it's worth reconsidering. So. And I do think that we can at least find solace in the fact that you, you said that you weren't on board with Trump's, you know, go ahead and kill the drug dealers. Oh my gosh, it was the worst. I, okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same page I, there. I, I was appalled by that. I don't think, first of all, not, I mean, I think Sarah put this in her piece too, but the number of people that are actually executed in the U.S. is rather, rather small. And he thinks that to stem the opioid crisis, we should just put all these drug dealers to death. That's not the way you're going to do it. And in my piece, I said, why don't we look at where the beginning addiction to these drugs starts? And more often than not, it starts with the prescription pad and it's written by a doctor. And so, so why are we focusing on the drug dealer on the corner that we should, oh, we should kill him. That'll, that'll change everything. That's not, that's not looking at realistically. That's taking an emotional stance and just, you know, making a blanket statement. Well, that's a really good segue, and I don't think you did it on purpose, because the next question I want to ask was in regards to the war on drugs. Oh, yeah. So you just brought up a really good point that, yes, a lot of this starts with the opioid crisis. Now, we've seen in a lot of states where medical marijuana or, or recreational marijuana has, has been introduced that we've watched as the number of opioid uh I say opioid deaths and opioid cases of addiction have, have plummeted dramatically. So would it stand to reason, Kimberly Ross of Red State, that maybe, just maybe, the key to help with this opioid crisis is not to kill the drug dealers, but maybe to legalize or at the very least decriminalize marijuana to then have that be an alternative for the opioids that are currently... I mean, they're, they're just all over our society. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I, I would say that on the, um, the issue of marijuana, I'm, I would say I'm kind of neutral, actually. It's not, I'm not super passionate about it either way. Um, but I do think that when we look at like the war on drugs and everything, I think there's far too much time, um, money, you know, law enforcement, all this stuff is so focused, to me at least, so focused on marijuana and keeping those who deal, you know, pot away from, you know, others and off the streets and in jail. And I mean, when you look at it, obviously, alcohol is quite often more of an issue than pot ever is. And I, <laughs> I don't smoke pot. I mean, I have a weak stomach. I'd probably vomit. But I don't think that when we're looking at cases of addiction, that marijuana is the the huge problem in our country. I think, like I said, alcohol and alcoholism causes a lot more, um, obviously, death in our country oh. than marijuana ever does. I mean, and, I had a, I had that yeah. tweet that went viral back in January. Oh, I saw that. Yes. And I was that just was like, it. "What is happening?" But is because, and I just, I personally think that a lot of the potheads out there were like, "Yeah, he's right." <laughs> and then I started seeing it being retweeted by like. So I watch a lot of NFL Network, and I started seeing, like, Rich Eisen, who's, like, the face of NFL Network, retweets it. I'm getting retweeted by, like, celebrities, and I'm like, what just happened? I woke up in the morning, I had 15,000 notifications on my phone. But oh, man. My, my phone, I had to turn off notifications because my, my battery was dying so fast. But my, my tweet, for those of you who aren't aware, so I, I tweeted sarcastically, scary marijuana facts. Number one, 88,000 deaths are annually attributed to its use. Number two, every day 30 people in the United States die in car crashes that involve a marijuana-impaired driver. Number three, teen marijuana use kills 4,700 people per year. Number four, LOL, JK, those stats are about alcohol. And, I mean, it went viral because I think it speaks to the fact that we, we've had this... this um, notion that was that was pushed through for for you know almost a hundred plus years that that marijuana is this terrible drug and it's gonna you know it's gonna make you your brain fried and it's going to you know destroy your life when the reality is i mean we have obviously a lot of it's gonna come down to the fact that we haven't really had studies conducted about marijuana because of its you know illegal nature but the fact that there is 
no real evidence supporting that marijuana is this you know detrimental destructive drug and then actually we have a drug that's legal in alcohol that we know it kills thousands of people every year and we we tried to ban it we found that it didn't work out um i actually did a a, a podcast back about a month ago and i was comparing to uh, the unintended consequences of the prohibition movement to the potential unintended consequences of the drug movement or i'm sorry of the uh, the gun control movement here in in modern day but the fact that i mean when you try to ban it, it just made a lot of things worse. And I think we're seeing that a lot of the drug deaths that we have now aren't attributed to the actual substance itself. It's the the drug cartels. It's the shootings. It's the black market that's making all this this you know this uh, secrecy and this uh, desire to to make make a profit off an illegal substance because people still want it. And if we just if we decriminalize it and legalize it and bring it all out of the dark, at the very least, I think we'd see deaths, you know, astronomically decrease. Just because now you no longer have the the main the the, the main issue of it being illegal and then fostering this this more dangerous cycle of having the substance on the streets. I mean, what are your thoughts on on, on that, Kimberly? I agree with you one hundred percent. Can you believe that? <laughs> no, I really that? do. Um, when I think when people uh, view, if you're looking at alcohol on one side and marijuana on the other, you can go to any store and get alcohol. I mean, you can't. It's not a big deal. It's not. It's not taboo. It's right there. When you think of marijuana, obviously it's illegal. It's taboo. You have to get it from a certain place or go to a certain state. And like you said, the offshoot, the real problem is, you know, the criminal enterprise connected to it. You know, people um, dealing it who also deal other drugs quite often, um, who may be involved in, you know, illicit activity and what happens from there. Uh, I think definitely for sure decriminalize it, um, regardless of if you, you know, agree with the actual smoking of pot or not, that's a separate issue. I think people that need it for medical use. Um, I was talking to a friend who's, um, one of her other close friends is, is in need of that to help with, you know, chronic pain that they have. And I have no problem with someone who needs it medically getting access to it and not having any barriers in the way of that. But I think if we're going to obviously look on a war at the war on drugs and um, dealing with a crisis, which right now it's the opioid crisis, it's not the marijuana crisis, then we should allow for the decriminalization of marijuana and focus on the real issues and the real drugs that are actually killing people um, and causing you know, broken families, broken communities. I mean, when Trump had this horrible idea for killing drug dealers, he was in New Hampshire and there were, I forget what the statistics were, but how many people have died of overdoses, opioid overdoses in the last year alone. It was astronomical. Especially in border states. I mean, I'm from upstate New York and the opioid crisis, we've, we've been having the opioid crisis since the early 2010s. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's been around for a while, actually. So back in one of my professional, the beginning of my professional career, I'd say, I was the director of public relations for a physical therapy company up in, in northern New York. And one of our, our big campaigns we did was um, physical therapy as a form of preventative slash alternative medicine slash um, prescription to opioids because of the increase in dependency, but also in the increase in abuse and deaths associated with the opioids. Um, so, I mean, in, on these border states, because it is, it's so prevalent up in, in not only the southern border, but in the northern border, um, you're seeing a lot of those border states have, you know, rampant uh, overdoses, rampant um, deaths, uh, the the illegal activities, and, and I mean, it correlates into all sorts of other of other drug issues, be it um, you know, not only you know heroin, obviously, but also methamphetamines and the yeah. likes. So it, it it is just it's a slippery slope, and I it, it's really upsetting to see that there are so many people, especially those individuals who are coming home from overseas, who they're the ones who end up in a lot of uh, circumstances the ones becoming dependent on those drugs. Um, and unfortunately, they become the ones who usually are, by and large, you know, being affected negatively from this. Um, right. <clears throat> now, that will lead me, how about that segue, to another... Good segue. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> it's like I've been doing radio for a while or something. Um, <laughs> but no, this brings me to my next uh, next question for you, Kimberly. So 
foreign policy. Now, we just watched literally just like an hour ago. Uh, President Trump has replaced H.R. McMaster as the national security advisor with dun, da, 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 John Bolton, the man with the <laughs> most amazing mustache. Um, all I can think of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Disney movie um, Frozen from 2013. He, he, oh, yes. he looks yeah. like the guy, the Duke of Weselton. That's all I can think of with the big mustache. And I just, uh, I, the mustache is on point, but his foreign policy as a libertarian makes me want to vomit. Um, I mean, he was one of the biggest proponents for the Iraq war. Um, he was really going out of his way to, I would and I say a lot of libertarians as well as you know people who are just in the, the anti-war slash non-interventionalist camp. I mean, he was out there purporting a lot of the misinformation to help get us into the war. So <clears throat> I don't want to specifically focus on him, but looking at foreign policy by and large, we have the, I would say the status quo camp where it's like just keep things as they are the neocon slash interventionalist camp where it's like we are america and we have to spread our democracy go america team and quote unquote save the world from bad people um or there's the non-interventionalist camp so the more Rand paul ron paul justin amash thomas massey who are like time out we have a lot of things we have to deal with here at home as it is. We're $21 plus trillion dollars in debt. We have watched bad things happen with the Iraq War, Libya. Uh, I mean, we, even we can go back into the 1950s looking at how Korea turned out, how Vietnam turned out. So we've seen the consequences and the unintended consequences in most cases of our foreign affairs. Let's pull things back, get our own house right, and then try to work through this in a non-military interventionist way. So, with that being said, I know you identify as a conservative. Where would you line up if you had to look at that spectrum being neocon, uh, status quo, non-interventionalist? Where would you find yourself kind of floating there in space? Uh, I would probably place myself in the status quo category. I'm definitely not uh, rah rah. We should be the world's policemen and go, you know, send troops everywhere just because we can. And we have this amazing military. Definitely not there. Um, not in the non-interventionist category either. Um, I do think it's important to make sure we have um, our military ready uh, in case, obviously, we need it. I don't think. I think obviously we should look at the military budget and not, you know, slash it to smithereens because we, you know, hate going sending our troops, you know, somewhere. Um, and as uncomfortable as that is, sometimes it's necessary. I do think we should have a good budget for national security. I don't think we need to have a base in every single corner of the world. Like I said, I don't think we need to be the world's policemen. I think it's, um, it's pretty sad what happened with the Iraq war. I have um, military members in my family uh, who went over there. Uh, I think when we look at when we look at the Iraq war, the fact that, you know, the different stages of um, pulling out, even though we're, you know, still involved, the fact that it's often crumbled and have the countries have had so many issues just because we've gone in and done things and then pulled back and they're unstable. I think that speaks a lot to the fact that, yes, we enjoy our democracy and our freedoms, but it's not always possible and it may be quite impossible to inject that sort of, you know, American style into these other countries as good as it would be for them. I mean, we have an imperfect system, but is it as good as it would be to help these different countries be more like us or even change for the better dramatically? It's not always the right thing to do. Obviously, if there's situations of genocide, um, you know, other issues going on, we should help as we can, but I don't think it's something that we should be so focused on uh, that we become, I don't know, so interested in sending troops out all the time and and have this kind of war hawk mentality. I don't, I don't think so. So I agree. Mm -hmm. I do. Um, I guess the one point of contention is that I think a lot of non-interventionalists, they... We're, we're all in the kind of camp that, like, we get it. Like, we need to have a strong national defense. I think the problem is just that 
when we look at our national defense, often the the term national defense has turned into like the the national war machine. Um, so like whenever we have those in the more I uh, say the more hawkish camp, they say, well, we need to we need to go ahead and we need to fund our defense. We need to make sure we pay our troops. And they, they do these rah-rah, feel-good uh, proclamations on the, on the Senate floor. And it's like, yeah, we're not saying you shouldn't fund our troops. It's not that you shouldn't you know, make sure that we're able to defend ourselves. It's that that's not what's happening with this money. I mean, we're seeing the military-industrial complex where we have literally billions upon billions of dollars being spent to all these various uh, private corporations that are getting government money to build these machines of war that, I mean, more often than not, don't actually end up getting used um, because, well, number one, if we did use them, that would just be like a catastrophic World War III. Uh, but number two, <clears throat> the fact that we have all these different nations that we are already a part of. So when I, I guess when I say status quo, I look at a country like... I think it's Germany, where we actually have, like, a couple military bases, like, in the country of Germany. Mm -hmm. I think that's insane. Like, we are in 2018. World War II ended almost, what, 75, 70, 75 years ago? Why the hell do we still have military bases in Germany? And, like, I get Russia has been the big bad guy knocking on the door for, well, pretty much since World War II. But, like... Do we really think that in an era of intercontinental ballistic missiles that it really matters if we have a base in Germany to shoot down missiles or we have all these super weapons that we have here at home? I just think, and this is where I think a lot of non-interventionists will come from, it makes sense to just pull back a little bit because we're spending billions every single year to basically, I mean unfortunately be that policeman figure in the world to stop you know saddam hussein from being a, a jerk and then you know looking at hillary clinton at Muammar Gaddafi saying we came we saw he died okay you're crazy and you just create a vacuum where we have isis great well right. done um so i think for me i just i want to see us be more like focus on common sense like yes let's defend like okay I'll use a really goofy analogy. I love analogies. Like, I go to the gym, and I lift really, really heavy weights. I will go, I will do bench press, I will do squats, I will do shoulder press, and I'm a big dude. I'm six foot six, 265 pounds, and I'm, I'm pretty bulky. But I have no intention whatsoever of ever taking a swing at somebody because I get angry one day when I'm out with my friends drinking. However... I want to be there as the the defense mechanism in case some other dick is out there trying to start fights. I can put them down pretty quick because I'm the big 6'6", 265 dude. So I want to see America be the big 6'6", 265 dude. I want to see America be the guy on roid rage going out just trying to beat everybody up because, well, he can. And I think that's where I want to see our foreign policy. As goofy of an analogy that is, that's my vision. No, I actually think that's a great analogy. And oh my gosh, you're tall. I didn't know you're that tall. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have no problem, I would say, with um, bases around the world. Not as many as we have now. I don't obviously mind having a few bases here and there. Don't think, like I said, we should have as many as we do at the moment. We should definitely not be the world's policeman. That's not our job. Um, regardless of if other countries are frustrated that we're not getting involved. I don't think we should concern ourselves with what other countries think as far as, you know, oh, the, you know, Americans should come over and help us. Well, I think we, first of all, need to do what's best for our country and we should have a strong national defense in case we need it. I think your analogy hits, you know, the nail on the head as far as we should be prepared, but we don't need to go out looking for fights and we don't need to, um, I guess, spread ourselves over everywhere just because we can because that's not exactly the best approach cool 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 so i want to i know we're getting close on time here i want to just kind of 
put a nice big bow on this podcast today with Kimberly Ross, a senior contributor at Red State. I want to get your expert opinion because you obviously have been looking at this political climate for quite a while. Um, I had William F. Buckley O'Reilly on. Uh, he's a, the, the chair of the Federalist Party of America. Um, I had him on last episode, and I asked him the same question, so I'm going to ask you the question now. Sure. Looking at 2018, here we are. We're, we're March 22nd as we're recording today. Looking forward to the primaries, but also into the 2018 uh, midterm elections. What the hell is going to happen? Are we going to watch either Trump and he's going to do something out of this world that's going to make the Republican base go woohoo and get out in droves to vote? Or are we going to see the biggest blue wave that we have not seen in a long time? That's, I'm talking like 2010 Tea Party red right. wave, but like blue wave and then like times 10. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. And... <laughs> I actually wrote a piece about that recently. How about that? How about that? <laughs> um, but I said the um, the group we really need to look at be, are the people who are the I should say undecideds, the people like me who are very frustrated with the um, Republican Party, who obviously I don't align with the Democrats and I'm don't not like sure. Trump. Right. I'm not sure exactly <laughs> what I will do come midterms. And I said the other day. There's so many lessons that the GOP needs to learn that if they lose dramatically at the midterm elections, would I be sad about that? You know what? I'm not sure I would be. I think they have a lot of lessons to learn for their um, just slobbering over Trump. But as far as the 2018 midterms, I can see it go both ways. And I know that's very middle of the road for me to say, and it's kind of probably libertarian to say. Just kidding. Um, but I can see it, the people that are part of the... <laughs> <laughs> the people that are part of the resistance, the people marching, saying that, um, well, the NRA kills kids, that Trump supports the NRA, that uh, Trump is the worst thing we've seen. They basically act like every tweet is an apocalyptic event. I can see those people being so fired up that they would go to the polls and make a difference. However, I can also see the other side that hears these same people say, oh, you, you want to kill kids. You don't care about... Um, you know, our country, you don't care about us fiscally, you don't care about, um, you know, school safety, you just, you know, want to follow Trump and do everything he says. I can see them being pretty enraged, too, because I'm not sure if you talk to some Trump supporters, but they're a little passionate about the man. So I can see, oh, yeah, I can see both, both things happen. But I think regardless, it's going to be some sort of wave. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a boring event, what happens at the midterms. I'm just, I'm going to my, my gut. So let me go back a little bit. So to mm -hmm. kind of preface this, I, I studied political science. I looked at, I've worked on campaign after campaign after campaign. So I'm pretty into the political sphere. I actually have a contact at the RNC and I was like, just, you know, messaging him. I was like, Hey dude, like, how's it looking? He's like, he's like, dude, 20 years from now, like, I don't even know if the party's going to be alive because what? they are looking at the the demographics of the GOP right now and like it's it's like 60% is is in the baby boomer generation. Mm -hmm. And that's really really bad for the GOP if if they want to have any sort of of you know semblance going forward like looking at 2038 which is like bizarre to even think about as a year like the GOP might not even be a political party anymore um and I wouldn't be surprised and like as a libertarian I'm like woohoo and then I look and I see we have our vice chair you know comparing uh, uh we have veterans and teachers to rapists and 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 you know saying to to veterans on veterans day well at least you tried and it's like all right so never mind that's not going to happen um <laughs> But but with that being said, I'm I'm looking right now at this election and my gut is like it is gonna be bad for the GOP, like really bad. And I think a lot of it comes down to two things. Number one, the Democrats and let's start with the Democrats, like you mentioned, the resistance, they are fired up. They are ready to go. Um but secondly I really think that the people that voted for Trump in 2016, that 
aren't his base. So I think there's like, we, we, we can look at his base. There's like a 30, 25, 30% of Republicans who are like a strong Trump, Trump, go Trump base. Mm-hmm. They'll vote for Trump and they'll vote for his, his, uh, his policies and they'll vote for his candidates. But there's a good portion of people who voted for Trump not to vote for Trump, but to vote against Hillary, number one, and number two, to vote for the Supreme Court. Like, that's, and, and right. of course, the build the wall, you know, MAGA people. Um, but I think that the, that group of people who voted against, or I'm sorry, voted against Hillary and voted for Neil Gorsuch, they're not going to come out this election unless it's like some strong pro-liberty candidates. Like, we have Nick uh, Fuentes over there in, in Virginia. We have Austin Peterson uh, over in, in Missouri. Um, <clears throat> a couple others that are, are escaping my name, top of my head right now. Uh, but, I mean, those candidates are the candidates I think we really got to push for. I just think, though, it's going to come down to that middle group. The the independent voter who yeah. they are, I don't want to say they're uninformed or uneducated. It's just they're not as into the political like sphere as much as we are. So they're not into the abortion issues. They're not into the gun issues as much. They're just like, hey, you know what? I go to work. I make a paycheck. Come home. Pay the bills. Go to bed. Type of people. And I think when you look at Trump, they're, they would say, okay, this guy's an idiot. And like he's making us look bad in his stupid statements he makes on Twitter and on in, in person. Like I just I, I want to vote against this guy. And I think that's going to be the deciding factor. And I think we've seen... In districts where Trump has won in these special elections by you know 15, 20 points, now these candidates are losing, and that's a really big red flag. Um, right. Because those are the the supposed to be quote unquote strong Republican seats, and they're not turning out that way. So that's just my my sit, standing on a soapbox and kind of saying what I see. Um, but it's good to hear that. Like, I mean, you're kind of in that same camp, and I think. As politicos, we kind of we're more in the meat and potatoes kind of folk. Like we're mm-hmm. we're in the trenches every day. Whereas, like, unfortunately, the reality is a lot of the average voters, like the person who just comes in to get the the dessert and then they leave, they're like, okay, whatever. I had my dessert. I'm gone. <laughs> so, like, I, I just I'm I'm nervous. Not not as because I want to see the GOP lose. I want them to learn a lesson. They need mm-hmm. to get their asses handed to them in some way, shape, or form. I think that they're going to, to to not make this mistake again. But in terms of policy, I'm nervous as hell. Well, I think, like I said, you make great points as usual. I think <laughs> a lot of people on election day, whether it's you know general election, presidential election, midterm elections, a lot of people, I mean, whether we like to admit it or not, are driven by the hatred of something. And... Trump voters were driven by the hatred of eight years of Barack Obama, the hatred of Hillary. I mean, the the hatred of the coastal elites, whatever you want to call it, that's what drove them to the polls. And the resistance there, they are fired up with hatred for Trump. And like you said, those who aren't as involved in like the everyday political scene, they're, I mean, they're not, they're not a spur. They don't have a passion to go to the polls. I mean, yeah, they might not want this guy to lose, but do they really want to take the time to do it? I mean, do they have that burning like hatred for the other side because the other side might win? I mean, I don't see it. I don't think it's there. So I tend to lean towards there's going to be a blue wave, but you know. I concur. Well, Kimberly, I am so happy that we finally got this set up to, to have you come on and, and really, you know, reach out to my audience. Um, but also to kind of bring in, uh, you know, to bring in some libertarian views to you. I think maybe we, we had some some groundbreaking moments today. I, I, I dig it. I think so, too. Thank you so much <laughs> for having me on. Absolutely. Well, guys, again, you can follow Kimberly on Twitter. She has a fiery Twitter, and I love it. Um, you can follow her at Southern Keeks. That's Southern K-E-E-K-S, all one word, um, on Twitter. And you can go ahead and check out some of Kimberly's awesome works over at Red State at redstate.com forward slash Kimberly underscore Ross. And as for me, you can follow me on Twitter and on Facebook at B Nichols Liberty. Uh, and please feel free to go ahead and hit that subscribe button on Patreon. Help us, you know, keep funding to be able to do these kind of podcasts. That we we seem to have a really great success rate with bringing on these different voices, trying to find some common ground. Uh, and I think leaving together, feeling pretty good about the conversation. Like, hey, you know what? 
don't necessarily agree 100%, but I get where you're coming from. Um, and then also, please feel free to go ahead and uh, like and review on iTunes. And as always, share today's podcast. Reach out to someone who maybe doesn't uh, understand or even really know about liberty, the liberty movement, uh, or, or somebody like Kimberly where she's really strong into pro-life. Um, you know, Help them see what we have over here to offer. Um, but until next time, guys, it's Brian Nichols here on The Brian Nichols Show, joined by Kimberly Ross from Red State. Thanks so much, and we will see you next week.